Mark chapter 8. I will be reading verses 22 through chapter 9, verse 1. But the sermon will be on verses 31 through 38. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him, that is Jesus, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe one of the great errors, uh, you could say faulty teachings or mindsets that have plagued many Christians and many churches since the early days of the church, since the times of the disciples is what we call Christian triumphalism. You're probably asking yourself, what what is that? What what does that mean? Well, it is the opposite of defeatism. Scratching your head, you're asking, well, what is that? Well, defeatism describes someone who is always ready to accept defeat. So the exact opposite of That would be triumphalism, which is the excessive celebration of one's own success or achievements. Christian triumphalism leads to teaching Christians that we must be on the winning side of the cultural wars as we see it break out all around us 
in order for the gospel in the Great Commission to be fulfilled. Uh, That the church must somehow, in some way, rule this world to fulfill her calling. That we must be a leading voice in the world and we must see worldly victory or prosperity in order to prove that we are being faithful to Jesus. And this victory is not speaking of victory over sin. It is not speaking of victory over Satan, but victory as the world defines victory. It is to be on top of the world, to control the narrative. It is to be prosperous and having all the numbers. Right? This is often the mentality of the megachurch. Our success is found in numbers rather than in faithfulness. And if the church loses in this world, then we must have been doing something wrong. We must have not been doing enough. Now this doesn't mean we do not resist the world. We do resist the world. But it may often seem as if we're losing. Right now, it seems as if the church and Christians are losing. But we know we're not. Why? Because our victory is found in Jesus Christ. And He has already won. The church is bound for victory. We will not lose. Even when it seems as if we're losing. Even if it costs us our lives. See, this mindset leads to the opposite of humility. It lacks in empathy. And it looks down on the weak. Because it prides itself on self-achievement. It is thinking too highly of oneself. It is, look how strong my faith is, rather than look how strong my God is. Rather than looking toward and living for the world to come, it is tied down to this world. But Jesus teaches the exact opposite in his way of discipleship, doesn't he? And he teaches the church that we must follow this pattern of the Savior's life, which wasn't all that glamorous or glorious by worldly standards. See, his disciples by this point were thinking very worldly. Uh, They expected worldly victory and achievement that would elevate them to a higher place in the world. Just like most of the Jews, they believed that the Messiah would come to liberate them politically and lead them into a physical war against their enemies. Now in the day of judgment, the Lord will wipe away our enemies. But there was a path that he had to walk before this would happen. There was a mission that he was to accomplish before he would judge the nations. He had to walk through the judgment himself for us. But that was not on the disciples' minds. By this point, being with Jesus for quite some time, they may have been feeling like nobles serving royalty, witnessing his ministry and proclaiming the kingdom of God. What power, what strength. 
from this revelation, as God would reveal to Peter, Peter would answer one of the most important questions that Jesus would ask him. Who do you say that I am? He answered correctly. He said, you are the Christ. You could imagine the thoughts going through the disciples' minds after Jesus confirms this. Okay, overthrow Rome and take back Israel. So this served as a good opportunity for Jesus to teach once again. First, he teaches that his mission is not worldly. It is not worldly. It is not the ordinary plan of man. It is not the victory or legacy that men usually plan for themselves. It does not follow the frame of mind that men have in this world. So he begins to correct their misunderstanding. He begins by identifying himself as the Son of Man and what the Son of Man was here to do. See, the title Son of Man is in reference to Daniel chapter 7. In a vision of God, Daniel saw a Son of Man who was both divine as well as human. But in Daniel chapter 7, it only speaks of the Son of Man's victory and glory. But here he says to his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So for the disciples to hear that the Son of Man was to suffer would have been a shock to say the least. They thought he was going to be this political nationalistic leader. So to hear that he was to die at the hands of the Sanhedrin, that is the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, would have disturbed them. See, the Sanhedrin were part of the highest Jewish courts, which was one of the most influential political groups who served under Rome. For him to die at their hands would be a demonstration of how the entire world including his own people, will unite to turn against the Messiah in a political fashion. They would have thought, I thought he was to be our liberator. He is not supposed to be defeated by the enemy. But this was the beginning of Jesus' second touch for the blind. Remember, he touched the blind man twice. The first time, he didn't see clearly. The second time, he saw clearly. This is the beginning of clarifying the disciples' vision. They understood that he was the Christ, but not clearly. They were still seeing people, but they looked like trees walking. So Jesus had to clarify what the Christ had come to do. But it sounds more like the suffering servant of Isaiah than the son of man of Daniel. And for the Jews at that time, this doesn't sound all too hopeful. The son of man is to die? But I think they missed the second part of that where he said he was to rise again. And he said all this plainly. But Peter was the leading triumphalist of the group. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Imagine that, the disciple rebuking his master. 
In Matthew's account, he tells us what Peter says. Uh, Peter was a little overly zealous. That's why being too zealous is not always a good thing, especially when you don't think through what you're, you're about to say. He thought he was being pious. So he said to Jesus, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. As a sinner, I would ask Peter, Why? Well, what are you going to do about it, Peter? What do you have in mind? War? Do you want to take up arms and establish the kingdom in a worldly way? See, Peter went from answering Jesus' question correctly about who he is to drawing the wrong conclusions. We can all be Peter's at some point, can't we? Drawing the wrong conclusions from what we read from Scripture. Our interpretation can be correct, but oftentimes our application can be wrong. So Jesus turned and saw his disciples because he knew they were all thinking the same thing. Remember, Peter was their spokesperson. And so to correct them and their worldly thinking, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Now, he wasn't actually calling him Satan. He didn't believe he was Satan incarnate uh, or that he worked for Satan. He is dismissing what he just said because he is acting and thinking like Satan. As Satan is the archenemy of God and his plans. God's plan for the Messiah was to die and to rise again. And what seems to be his defeat will lead to his glory. In order for the Messiah to gain victory, he was to suffer. In order for us to gain victory, he had to suffer. You thought I was going to say we have to suffer. No, he had to suffer. It was God's plan that the Messiah would atone for our sins by dying at the hands of sinners. So this would mean that Peter was not setting his mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He is not talking about competing loyalties here. He's not saying you either set your mind on the things of God or set your mind on the things of man, as if they're always contradictory. No, what he is saying is that natural humans, the natural man, cannot understand or grasp the divine purpose that he just described. He is saying that the mind of man is so tied to the world that this would be unthinkable. That the victorious son of man of Daniel came to suffer and die. He is talking about the mentality of the natural man that would think what leader in this world would give himself up to his enemies to be killed as the way to attain victory. That's not the way you win a war. What sort of victory is this? There is no victory in death. Or so they thought. See, the Jews believed that at this point in time, that if you lived long and prospered, 
kind of like Star Trek. That you were blessed. That you were blessed by God. And that you were in God's favor. So to die meant you were cursed. And cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Remember, Christ became a curse for us. And now Christians are going to be viewed from this point forward as those people who are cursed. When it is the exact opposite. God gave Israel victory in wars over the years. And Israel was promised that the Messiah would defeat their enemies and restore their nation and land. But they thought it was going to be a worldly victory. They lacked spiritual understanding. Because what they needed was atonement for their own sins. That's what we need. When you confess that you are a sinner. And you say and believe that Jesus came to die for my sins. And he was raised for my justification. That's what it means to set our minds on the things of God. Not only that, but we are also expected to follow Him. This is the first of three times that Jesus will declare that He is to suffer, followed by teaching His disciples what they are to do. And this is where He goes next. So after He rebukes Peter for not setting His mind on the things of God, uh, they must have been arriving at their location of Caesarea Philippi. Because he calls on an unidentified crowd and his disciples to himself. And begins to describe the mission of a disciple. Just like the mission of Jesus is not worldly. The mission of a disciple of Jesus is not worldly. So secondly, the mission of the church is not worldly. Since the church is made up of disciples. And there is a cost to being disciples of Jesus. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now when he says to deny himself, he is not talking about Lent. Now, if you practice Lent, that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But he is not saying that you are to deny yourself of something such as pleasure, right? It's not denying yourself of something for a season. Like this year, I'm going to deny myself chocolate. But once Lent is over, what do we do? We indulge in chocolate to make up for lost time, right? No, that, that's not what he is saying. Uh, today in uh, therapeutic Christianity, uh, there is this emphasis on self. It's all about you. Love yourself. But Jesus says, deny yourself and follow me. Today in our society, it's all about our identity. Right? Know who you are. Be proud of who you are. Jesus says, deny yourself. Forget who you are. Now, he doesn't say forget whether or not you're a man or a woman. He says, 
Deny what you were in the world that you held on to so strongly. Deny the idol of your identity. Because you are no longer to be controlled or guided by your own interests. You no longer control your own destiny. You are to abandon your identity, your self-determination, and your self-achievements. And you are to join the Savior on this walk toward execution and death. Doesn't sound too appealing, does it? That's why he says, take up your cross and follow me. Notice he says this before he even goes to the cross. The cross was one of the worst forms of Roman execution. And Jesus foretells his exact mode of his death. This was how he was to die. And he calls his disciples to die in the same way, metaphorically speaking. But this is what it means to follow Jesus. It means to die so that you may live. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So whoever would try to save his own life, his own way, will lose it. He is speaking of those who are self-reliant, relying on their wealth or some other means besides Jesus to save them. Could be worldly philosophy or some other worldly religion. Because when he calls us to die, it is not for any old cause. Uh, We have used this passage as a life principle, which is fine. But sometimes we run the risk of missing the point. Because we could die for many noble causes. Actually, it is a Christian duty to live and to die for others, if necessary. For there is no greater love than this, than to lay down our lives for our friends. There are people who sacrifice their lives every day to keep others safe, such as parents... Police officers, firefighters, the military. And we should recognize it. Christians are called to seek the good of our neighbors, aren't we? To seek the good of our cities, our towns, our country, the world. We're called to it. It is a way of demonstrating our love for our neighbors. But Jesus is calling his disciples here to a specific sacrifice. He is asking his disciples, are you willing and ready to die for me? In the Gospels. See, taking up our cross is not just about enduring hardships or dying to sin, though it can be. As Paul says, we are to crucify the flesh But it means here that you are willing to die for Jesus Christ. You are willing to die when those whom you would die for turn on you for the sake of Jesus. Would you die for Jesus? 
if your country turned on you because of Jesus. See, he's not calling his disciples to pacifism or or being passive, never to defend ourselves, right? What he is saying here is that when the world systems, when the powers that be all align together and turn against you, when the whole world and the system that governs it turns against you for being a Christian, are you prepared? Are you prepared to receive the ultimate penalty when it becomes illegal to become or to be in Christians? See, the people you would die for, what if those same people turned the tables on you? What if they made you choose between them and Jesus? Would you give up your life? Over the past few centuries, the church has experienced some relative success in the Western world. As uh, one pastor said, we live in a blip in history. Right? Because this is not the norm. What do we experience here? Freedom of religion. The church living peacefully in society was never expected to happen in the early church. And it's not expected to go on forever. I mean, once you read Revelation, it's not expected to go on forever. Jesus taught and demonstrated the norm. He said, if the world hates me, they will hate you. But there is a hopeful promise that he gives us. He says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came to die for sinners. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That promise is not attached to any other cause that we would die for. Only this cause. Now, he's not telling us how we are to save ourselves. He is describing the path that every disciple must be willing to take and the cost of being a disciple. The evidence of our discipleship is found in what we value most. Is it Jesus or is it ourselves? If it is ourselves then we will lose our lives eternally. But if it is Jesus, we will save it. Now, he hasn't been teaching this morbid self-humiliation. He's not telling them to practice that. He's not telling them to have a martyr complex. You know, there are people who go out and cause trouble, make a lot of noise in the name of Jesus, just to cause attraction to themselves. Look how strong my faith is and look how much of a victim I am for Jesus. No, he's not telling them to do that. Actually, Christ would be described as a lamb silent before its shears. We're not called to love persecution, right? We're actually to pray to live peacefully among all people. Like when Paul warns, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. 
But what he is doing, he is calling them to a life that is free to follow him, letting go of the fear of death for him, and letting go of our self determination for his sake. He is calling them and us to a life of obedience and dependence on him. And if we die for his sake, we have the promise of life because he will save us. He will save us in the midst of death. And we can say with Paul, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Then Jesus asks a crucial question that has been misused many times for the wrong reasons. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The word here used for soul can also be translated as life. This has often been used as a moral principle to shame the rich or those who seek to gain the world, to get and acquire stuff, right? It has been used to answer a material question rather than a spiritual question. Because without God, giving up material things means absolutely nothing. It means nothing. And gaining the world simply means clinging to anything in this world and in this life, including this life itself, in exchange for giving up our lives to Jesus Christ. It means holding on to anything which takes the place of Christ. It means holding on to anything we hold that takes the place that belongs to God in our lives. That's what it means to forfeit our souls and lives. He goes on to qualify what he means when he says this, for what can a man give, that is, give to God in return for his soul or life? Whatever we are chasing after or whatever we are trying to achieve will never ransom our souls. There is nothing in the world that we can give to God that is worth our eternity. There is nothing we have or nothing that we have gained that will ransom our souls. There is no righteousness that these disciples or that we could give to God that will be good enough to save our souls. So the only choice that anyone has on this planet is to follow Jesus is to follow Jesus. This text is about following Jesus as our God, not just giving up material things. Giving away all that we have means nothing if we haven't turned to God. He's just repeating what the psalmist says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. That he should live on forever and never see the pit. There is nothing in this world that can save us from death. And there is nothing that we can give to God in exchange to ransom our lives. He is saying, in a nutshell, man cannot save himself. There is nothing you can turn to in this world or this life that will give you life. Only God 
can give you life. So follow Jesus. He can give you life. He can save you from death. Trust in Him. So when He asks the question, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? He is asking you, what is it that you value most? Is it God? Then follow Jesus. And when he asks, for what can a man give in return for his soul? He is asking you, what are you depending on to save your soul? Is it God? Then follow Jesus. Because Jesus is the author of life. He is the one who created your soul and the only one who can give you life. He is the only hope for the redemption of humanity. God alone can raise the dead. And Jesus is saying, He is the one who will resurrect you from the grave. So don't worry what man will do to you. This is about believing in and following Jesus, not about simply living simply and not accumulating stuff. All of our stuff must be viewed in light of who Christ is and what He calls us to do when we follow Him. So the key here in this passage is not about our own charity or our own righteousness, but it is about giving up our lives to Jesus Christ, trusting in Him and following Him despite where this road may lead us. Thirdly, the church is to be unashamed of Jesus. He summarizes his point here by giving us a glimpse into the heavenly throne room on judgment day. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now he is speaking to the crowd, which would have included his disciples. And in their thoughts, especially in Peter's, they were probably thinking, I would never be ashamed of Jesus. I will never fall away. But the disciples would all leave him when he is betrayed and arrested. And Peter would later deny him three times. Now they will get another chance, as all of us will. But whoever is ashamed of Jesus on the last day, Jesus will be ashamed of them when he returns. So far, we noticed that he lays out for us the cost. The cost of being the son of man and the cost of being a disciple. First, the cost of being the son of man is that he is to suffer and die to ransom the lives of sinners. But there is also a great day of vindication, just like through his judgment on the cross to die for our sins comes salvation Through his suffering comes glory. Though he suffered at the hands of sinners, he will also have the last word. Through his innocent sacrifice, he will be vindicated, similar to the way that Aslan is vindicated in the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And he comes back on the broken table in his glory to judge the white witch and her followers. This is similar to what is going on here. 
Jesus will be vindicated when he returns in his Father's glory, the glory that they shared before the world was created. Divine authority has been given to him in the final judgment of the world. And those who didn't believe in him, those who didn't want his forgiveness, those who didn't want to follow him, they will be judged. He will be ashamed of them and send those who reject him into eternal shame. And the cost of being a disciple is not just believing in Jesus, but also following Jesus, confessing him before men, similar to what we did this morning when we brought two new members before us, and they confessed him before men. Confess him the way that Peter confessed him. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Confess him without shame, even if it means our own death. If we endure rejection from the hands of men for his sake and accept shame in this world for a little while, we will be welcomed by the Son of Man in glory. A little bit of shame here is worth the honor we will receive later. Now, we've all been through it, and there were times when we all hesitated to talk about Jesus because we were thinking through the consequences that would take place. Maybe it wasn't the right time nor place to say anything. But there will be a point where the rubber will meet the road. And we will be called to confess him, whether it's in front of men like we did this morning or in the midst of persecution. But we must all confess. We're thinking through, what if right now we were called to die for Jesus. Would we? Now there's a story of. When Russia was taken over by communism. And the communist soldiers walked into a church. And they had their guns pointed at all the people in the church. And they said okay. All fake Christians please leave. And all the true Christians stay behind. And. of the people left. And there were only 10% left behind in the church. And the soldiers swung the guns around to their back and said, okay, let's pray. How many of us would actually give up our lives for Jesus if we were called to at this moment? On our own, we wouldn't. Right? We're naturally cowards. And that is why we need His Spirit. We need the Spirit. And we ought to pray for the courage to do so if we're called upon. So what this text is asking of us is what is it that you value in this life? And where does Jesus come in? Are you willing to give up everything for him if he calls you to? Are you willing to embrace the cross? Are we willing to deny ourselves and trust in him with our lives? Because the mission of the church is not of this world. We were made to confess Jesus Christ and confess him before the nations. 
teaching them to observe all that He commanded us. And pray, may the Lord help us to do just that. Amen.